Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Solomon writes, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this time in your presence. Thank you for your word. I ask now for a special empowering from your spirit to be able to communicate your heart and your word. More than that, God, I, I invite and I ask in your mercy for you to communicate through me, for you to speak. This is your time for your voice to be heard. So, Lord, get mine out of the way. Use me as a vessel to speak to your people. Jesus, this is all about you. May we, may we get a, a fresh vision of you this morning that we might give you our whole lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so interesting enough, as Solomon makes his way into chapter 5, isn't it unique what he is applying vanity to in this chapter. Uh, up until this point, life without God, Solomon says, here's the deal. Work without God is vanity. He's already told us that. Like, what you, if, it's, if this is all there is, he goes, our legacies are only going to last so long. Our security is only so strong. He's talked about that already. Work, it's vain. Without God, without there being something eternal that we can commit our work to, it's vanity. He says this. He says, life, it's really vanity. Time? Without God? We read that a couple weeks ago, right? The seasons of life. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. Without God? It's just all vanity. We're just slaves to the tyranny of time. He's even told us without God, the pursuit of satisfaction is vanity. That's what we've learned. Trying to find meaning in life through my accomplishments or what I can learn or what I can become or what I can acquire or what I can experience, the amusements of life. He says, without God, the pursuit of satisfaction in this life is a work in futility. You're going to be left empty-handed. Even a couple weeks ago, we learned that probably the hardest of all, death itself, death. Our mortality, without God, 
without a creator God who has the authority over death to give life where there's death, death is in vain. Our loved ones who have passed on, it's, it's, it's all in vain. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Last week we had Russ teach on relationships. Walking through a few, uh, that earlier chapter there in, in chapter 4, looking at even our relationships, the vanity in how we relate to each other, how we can greet each other with a smile but have envy in our hearts towards each other. How we can isolate ourselves, how we can become know-it-alls and not receive any correction from anyone. I mean, Solomon has observed almost every aspect of life and how, without God, it's vanity. I mean, it's amazing. And then here in chapter 5, Solomon gets, gets into an area of life that we would maybe never ascribe vanity to. And it's the area, listen, of religious worship. Of spirituality. Of religion. He, he speaks in this chapter uniquely about a kind of religious vanity. Interesting. Interesting to think that there could even be vanity, hevel is the word, he uses it there, smoke, a wisp of vapor. There could be nothingness even in the house of God. Now that's what Solomon is focusing on here in this chapter. He's, he's not just focusing on any sort of general religion and, and spirituality. Solomon is focusing on this kind of emptiness that is occurring specifically in the people of God coming to the house of God. That's what he says. You saw it there? The house of God. That's verse one. He says, he talks about coming to the house of God. In Solomon's mind, he's thinking of the temple that he himself constructed and supervised. Solomon oversaw the construction of that temple and he watched worshipers come in and out, in and out, doing their religious, their spiritual duty. And as he's watching, he starts to notice even in the worship of God, even in the Christian faith, even in hyper-spirituality, there's a great deal of emptiness. It's a scary thought, isn't it? There's this verse, it's a really frightening scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I don't, I don't know the exact verse, but 2 Timothy chapter 3 is this, it's this passage where Paul is writing at, at, he's at his, his deathbed. Paul was a, a leader of the Christian faith and a pioneer of the Christian faith uh, right after the times of Jesus. And, and Paul is speaking to a young man named Timothy and, and he's telling Timothy that, listen, there are days coming. We're in the church, amongst the people of God, he says that there is going to be a form of godliness. But there will be a lack of power. There's going to be this great shell to the spirituality. I mean, it's got the screens and the environment and it's, and it's hip and it's welcoming and it's happy and it's, it's emotional and it's uplifting and it's inspiring and it's self-helpful. But though it has a shell, there's a time coming where that shell will not have any substance to it. A, a scary thought to think. Imagine this. The church just going through the motions. A church just showing up, doing church, setting up, breaking down, coming in, singing the songs. The guy comes up, he does the prayer, he does the announcements. Andrew comes up, talks for a long time, and then sends us out. And, and what am I going to eat now? I mean, right? Spiritual vanity. 
a form of godliness denying its power. There's a lack of substance he talks about in the house of God. Now, um, today, we, we can translate this as we look into the new covenant. Um, Paul uses this same concept, the house of God, coming to the house of God to refer to the church. Okay, let, let's talk about, it's good. When we're doing church in, the, in a gym, we should probably talk about what church is, right? So 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul writes this to Timothy. Timothy was a young leader um, a 30-something, leading a church of, of all ages. I, I relate to Timothy a bit. I kind of feel like that. I'm a young leader who's learning how to build a plane here while it's in the air. You know? And we've had some turbulence. Some people have jumped ship, but we're still going, okay? But, sorry, that was from the pits of my heart. Okay, First Timothy 3.15, Paul's writing to a young leader, trying to figure things out in a difficult urban context, leading the people of God. And Paul writes him an entire letter about how to conduct himself, look at this, in the house of God, notice this, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So same idea, right? Solomon is observing spiritual vanity in the house of God. In the New Testament, we have the same idea. The church of Jesus Christ is the house of God. And when you follow this metaphor throughout the scriptures, what you learn about this idea of a house is this is not speaking so much to a building as much as it's, it's speaking to a family. A family. Uh, later on in this, in this same letter, Paul in chapter 5 will tell Timothy, listen, in the house of God, the, the older women should function like mothers. The older men should function like fathers and train up the young men and women. The young women and the young men should treat each other like brothers and sisters. Okay, uh, so, so there's this vision that Paul gives of the church functioning as a family. In fact, that's one of our core values. Uh, we have a value here at Solace Church that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, we would not just go, yeah, we're a family through the gospel, through Jesus, we're sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, brethren. Like, we, we want to get beyond just the holy talk. And we have this core value that says that we seek to function as a family. Like if Jesus really did purchase our lives in such a way that he's united us together closer than anything else could, we want to function in that. We want to live and do life as a family, as the family of God. This, therefore, then, is the house of God. A church is the house of God, not because of the place, but because of the people. Church is the house of God, not because of the place, but because of the people. So, so even a gym can be a church. A cafeteria can be a church. Hey, don't get me wrong. A church building can be a church, right? Yeah. But an underground secret basement in a town where Christianity is outlawed can be a church. The back end of, of some dark woods in the middle of the night with a couple candles can be a church. You see, the, the church is not about a place. The church is about a people. And that's what Paul is writing to Timothy all about, that the church of Jesus Christ coming to the house of God. It's a family. And how many of us know this, that a healthy family gets together? Okay. How many of us know that unhealthy families don't? <laughs> or when they do, they, they're there, but they're not there. They're like texting each other or something, you know, like at the same table. Or they're all face down at the phone and the food is there and they're just kind of like this. Um, my family, we, we had such an awesome week this past week, and it was really not because of what we did or where we went. It was just, man, it was a great week for my family because we got time to just be together. There was one day this week where we spent the entire, I'm not even kidding you, and I have no guilt in saying this, we spent the entire day in a bed watching movies. The whole day. 
I forgot how to walk. I got up, I was like, how do I do this? Like, it was awesome. We watched the Cinderella live action movie like three times. Um, just have courage and be kind, okay? But, um, you know, that's what a healthy family does. They're together. They come together. That's what the house of God is. So that's what, what Solomon is speaking to. That's what, what, what Paul is speaking to. He's speaking about, listen to this, what we're doing right now. The family of God, a local gathering of the people of God who come together before the person of God in gratitude for the grace of God. That's why we're here. Amen? We're here as the people of God to gather around Jesus in gratitude for his grace. And that's why we, we stress the idea of Jesus at the center. We want to design the entire uh, function of our gatherings here every Saturday morning no, or Sunday morning, no matter where they are. This started in a, in, a, in a living room of a home. It ended up in a dance studio. Ended up now in a cafeteria. Today it's in a gym. No matter where we are, the purpose is still the same. For us to be a people gathered around Jesus. And we, we talk about this idea of doing this three ways every week. That when we gather together here on Sunday, we're seeking to gather around the worth of God. That's worship. We sing to him. We recenter on our lives around how valuable Jesus is and how worth it he is. Amen? He's worthy. We say things like, you are holy. You are worthy. You are worth my whole life, not just my whole song. We, we center ourselves around the worth of God. Nothing costs more than you, God. You're worth my whole life. We center around the word of God. His word, there's, there's nothing pure in this life like the word of God, amen? So we center ourselves around what God has to say. We study the Bible because this is the word of God. We center also around the work of God. We're not here to become know-it-all Christians. We're, we're not here to learn some new information about Ecclesiastes. I hate to break it to you, even though we just got some. We're here, I'm here. Because I am in desperate need of God working in my life. Anybody else? Like, I really need him. I need him tomorrow. I need him today. I need him yesterday. And so we gather to center around him. Who he is, what he has said, in doing that in such a way that we are different people, right? Otherwise, listen, if we're coming in here singing some songs, learning some things but not leaving changed, this time was vain. Vanity. Solomon's saying that. He's noticing how that can happen in the church. You come to church, the people of God are coming to the house of God, but here's what they're failing to do. He tells us in verse 1 that when we come to the house of God, we ought to what, do what? He says, in the New King James, he says, walk prudently. Walk prudently. Now, I love this phrase Solomon is getting us to think about. Solomon is getting us to think about not just that we're coming to church, but how we're coming to church, how we're entering the house of God. And, and the, the phrase he uses in, in the Hebrew, it's translated here, uh, walk prudently or wisely. Uh, the King James is probably my favorite. I like sometimes those little King James phrases that make me feel like, I don't know, like a royal delegate or something. Um, is that a thing? Maybe. But nonetheless, the King James says it this way. When you come to the house of God, I love it. It says, keep thy foot. It's like, well, okay, I think I got my foot. You know, what does that mean, right? Keep your foot. Now, the modern translation of this would be the phrase, watch your step. Uh, just uh, last week, we were, family and I went on a little vacation, a little cruise, the first time, a little getaway. We ended up in Grand Cayman. I was kind of thinking about the, the message a little bit and was entering, uh, exiting one of the ferries, 
uh, into uh, the, the port there at Grand Cayman Islands, a beautiful island, and I noticed this sign, watch your head, watch your step. And, and that's the idea, right? Uh, as I was going down these steps, these steep stairs on this ferry, with crowds pushing behind me like cattle, I was coming down these stairs with my kids, like, come on, you know? Um, I had to be mindful I had to be, be thoughtful about each step I took, because if I misstep, I would fall. And so this is the idea that, that Solomon is saying about entering the house of God. When you come to, if we want to come into this place, if we want to gather as a family around Jesus to experience his work in our lives, we must come into the house of God, not on autopilot, but mindful, thoughtful. Watching our step. Now, now think of it this way. When you enter the house of God, it's like, I think a good illustration of this is like when you enter a guest's house compared to your house. Like we all know there's a difference between how we keep our feet, how we're keeping our step, keeping thy feet. When we go to our own home and a guest's home, usually it does, I mean, imagine if you showed up at a fr- first time at this guest home, they invite you over, we'd like to have you over for dinner, you come over and you walked in like it was your house. You know what I'm saying? You walk, you, maybe you're like a shoes on in that. There's two different kinds of people in this room. There's the shoes in the house people. And then there's like leave the shoes at the stop sign on the other end of the street kind of people. You know, when I come into my house, I have a routine, right? Backpack goes off. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm diving on the couch. I'm wrestling with the kids. Now, if I came over to your house and you opened the door, I kept my shoes on. I dove onto your couch and started wrestling your children. You might be like, yeah, this is not the church for me. I'm going to skip town. You're mindful. You're thinking, right? And if you're respectful of of that person's home, you're going to ask, hey, do I take my shoes off here? Shoes off? Okay, sure. Yeah. Oh, nice dog. Good to see you. It smells so good. What'd you make? Right? You're very like, you don't do that when you go home. Honey, what'd what'd you make? You know? You just go right for the pan. You start eating, don't you? Yeah. Now, now this is what Solomon is getting at. We've got to be thoughtful because, listen, this is not the house of man. This is the house of God. This is all throughout Israel's history, this actually specific rebuke. It's not just common for the church of the 21st century to be a part of vain, repetitious, empty gathering. This was, unfortunately, this is the sort of the heritage of the people of God throughout history. God constantly having to call them out of autopilot. Especially Israel. God had some harsh things to say to Israel. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, it lays out a great version of it. I want to give you Amos chapter 5. It's kind of small font, but let me read this to you. In Amos 5, God is calling out Israel because they're coming into the house of God and they're doing all the spiritual things, but they are neglecting the poor. And they don't have a heart for justice, which reflects the heart of God. And, and that, that, that shouldn't be happening because if you spend time around God, you get to know what he's into and you start to get into the same things, right? And, and in the church of, of, uh, or in Israel at that time, uh, they were coming before God and they were doing their spiritual duty, checking it off the list and then passing by their neighbor who was in need of, of clothing or whatever it may be. There was great injustice in the land. And so God says, I hate, listen, look at this. Look at the language of God to this sort of vain worship. Amos 5 uh, verse 21 says, I hate... God speaking, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take, look at this, take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see God's heart here? 
hey, listen, I'm not saying the song wasn't awesome, but what you're singing from your lips is not matching what's in your heart. And so it's sounding brass and a clanging cymbal to me, and it hurts my ears. The message translation says it so poetically. It, it, it translates it this way. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making, your social media strategies. I threw that in there. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. So maybe we should ask this question. Why should we be concerned with how we come into the house of God? And maybe we should think about this answer. Because God is. Why should we care about how we posture ourselves coming into the presence of God with the people of God? Because God has great concern for how we come before him. And not just so that he feels better about himself, but because he loves us. And he has, listen, the, the, the sad thing would be that, listen, not just that like we rob God of something, but that we miss his work in our lives. Like, if we're not changing, why are we doing this? Anybody ever actually asked yourself that question with the Christian faith? I've had to. Why am I, like, this is a great question, ready? Why am I following you, Jesus? Why am I following a 2,000-year-old Jewish rabbi who I believe is alive still and I believe is the king of the universe? Why am I doing that? Do I believe that? Is it worth it? This is what Solomon will lead us to ask, man. And this is what he's been doing throughout this whole book, right? Like forcing us to take a brutally honest look at life. He's not letting us wear the rose-colored glasses and go, everything's fine, let's sing the happy songs. No. Life is too short to do that. Let me, let me look at, a, let's look at a couple things here. I want, I want us to, to focus on what Solomon goes on to because here's what I think he gives us. Solomon gives us some practicals of how to go to church. This is what he gives us. He sets up first this, the importance of thinking about how we're coming before God. And so I want us to think about this for a second. How are we coming to church? How to go to church? Here's a helpful message. By the way, you're already here. So you've already accomplished the first point. We're going to get at it in a second. So thanks for being here. Um, now that we're here, let's figure out how we should be doing this. Amen? Like if we're going to keep, like if you're going to come back next Sunday, if I am too, let's make sure we're doing this the right way. In fact, remember 1 Timothy 3, that's actually what Paul is writing to Timothy about. He's saying, I'm writing so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So how do we go to church? The first thing that Solomon says is that we should go to church regularly. Okay, point one. Point one, we should go to church regularly. You go, Andrew, I didn't see Solomon say that. Is this like one of your tactics to get me to come to church more often? Okay, no. And of course, you know, it's convenient for the pastor to say his first point is, hey, come to church more, okay? But notice what Solomon says. Walk prudently, look at this word, when you go to the house of God. When you go, right? He doesn't say, if you go, if you make it, if you end up at church. He's speaking about sort of like a cultural norm. It's, it's a given. It's accepted. 
as a Jew, you, you come to the house of God. You know, it's interesting, Jesus spoke the same way when he spoke about spiritual practices as a follower of Jesus, right? Um, this, this is so central to the teaching of Jesus. A lot of us, when we think about our apprenticeship to Jesus, discipleship to Jesus, how many of us, we fall into this trap, I know I do, where I think about my spiritual growth in sort of, with these metrics of like these big experiences, right? Like, if, I, if I'm going to grow, I got to have these big emotional charges, you know, okay, I'm, I'm back, Lord, you know? And like, I need like these big revelations, like I need heaven to open up and go, oh yeah, and like, I'm changed, you know? Like, we tend to think about spirituality and spiritual formation that way, and to be honest, that's why we form a lot of our services, not around teaching the Bible, but about experience, because I got to get a, tr- I got to get something, I, I need something big, I need to match that conference I was at two weeks ago, all right, because that changed me, and now it's over, what am I going to do? But, but when you study the way of Jesus, what you find is that great spiritual progress doesn't always come from these big explosive moments, it comes from faithfulness in small things. Like, mom, as tired as you are, you're going to get on your knees and you're going to read two verses. And you're going to say, Jesus, use this to change me. And you're going to set your heart, you're going to set your alarm to do it. So, so Jesus, for example, he, he spoke in the same way. He said in Matthew 6, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. You see these, these practical things of, this, of the Christian life. I'm going to be faithful in, in my finances and giving to the house of God in giving to the needy. I'm going to be faithful. I want to be faithful in the small things in my prayer life. A lot of us, we have this big call and this big feeling to ministry. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, I would rather teach, would rather teach uh, one man to pray than ten men to preach. If I could just teach one man to pray, he, he's, God's going to use him greater than the ten men who have all the greatest preaching skills in the world. Because preaching can woo a crowd, but prayer moves mountains. So Jesus spoke about these, these practices, giving, praying, fasting. Uh, but, but notice how he spoke about them in expected terms. Do you see the same word there? When you fast. Not if you pray. Not if you give. Not, it's like this is a part of following Jesus. Faithful in these things. Faithful in giving. Faithful in praying. Faithful in fasting. I, I want you to think about your life for a second. I want you to think about the spiritual dryness that you've experienced. And I want you for a second to stop believing the lie of the enemy that something's wrong with you. Just gather your thoughts for a second. Center yourself and think about, how are my rhythms, right? How's my time with Jesus? How's my time in his word? How's my time? Am I on my knees? Am I being charitable and generous? Is my heart closed? Jesus gives us the remedy. He says, follow me. Take my yoke. Just follow me. Be faithful. Let me give you the spiritual vitality as you're faithful in these small things. Amen? This is so huge to following Jesus. And then you see, even in 1 Corinthians, as we get back to this idea, you see Paul talks about coming together as a church as another when. Okay? When you come together as a church. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. When you come. Not, hey, if you end up, if you get around to it, you know. If you got a free Sunday, if you run out too late on Saturday, you know, if you wake up, if you remember, if you didn't work too hard, there's this expectancy to prioritize being with the people of God, coming together as a church when you come. Now, what's interesting is I don't think many of us think about this in the same way we think about 
praying, fasting, giving, right? We're like, Jesus taught praying, fasting, giving. Yeah, those are spiritual disciplines. And you know, like, you know, if you go to church every now and then, throw it in there, right? And we sort of like buy into this illusion that it's sort of like this optional addition today um, to come to church or be a part of a fellowship, be committed. Um, I want to just kind of say that I, I think it has a lot to do with how culture has really influenced the American church. A community being committed to each other is not as much of a problem in the Middle East because it's their family in Christ is all they have. But here in the U.S., we have other things. It's kind of an American problem. And I think what's, what's especially um, unique about it is we live in a day and a uh, where the, the climate of spirituality, um, I think, is, is best characterized by one of my favorite authors and speakers. His name is John Mark Comer. And he says, we live in a day and age, listen to this, of DIY spirituality. DIY. Do it yourself, right? So take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know. I go to this church for this. I go to that mosque or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like a little bit of everything. And we should let judgment begin in the house of God with this because this has creeped into the church like crazy. DIY Christianity. Do it myself. Jesus and me, discipleship, um, which I want to say this is a recipe for spiritual disaster. It's a central practice to formation. It's a central lifeline to your spiritual life. When you come together as a church. So simply, point number one, let's go to church regularly. Amen? <laughs> um, footnote, you can just put in parentheses, on time. It's on time. 10.30 is when we start. Secondly, Solomon says that we should also go to church, write this down, receptively. Regularly, we prioritize because we value what God wants to do at church, so we schedule it, we're there, we prioritize being there. But uh, Solomon is not just concerned with, uh, it's not just a matter of if we go, he's not just concerned with that we go, but how we go, how we go, how we come. So it's important that we come, but how we come, remember that's the big idea. He says in verse uh, verse 1, draw near to the house of God to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. So how should we come to church? Solomon says we should come receptively. He says when you come, when you draw near to God, what a great way to think about what church is, amen? Like no matter where you are, that, can I tell you something? That will get you excited about being here every Sunday morning. You get to draw near to God. And the Bible says if you draw near to God, here's the best news. He's there drawing near to you. And there's nothing you, you and I need more in life than God drawing really near. And me drawing really near to him, being close with God. And so that's the vision of gathering. But when you do it, Solomon says, when you draw near to God, make sure you're doing it in a way that is receptive and listening. You're hearing. He says this, rather than coming, notice this, to give, he says in verse 1, the sacrifice of fools. Which is a great expression for how we can just go about our religious duties, right? In the words of Nacho Libre, our priestly duties, okay? Our duties. We, we just kind of come and, we, and we're here and, and you know, I'm, God, I'm here, I'm giving you a sacrifice. I'm here, I'm at church. All right, I'm in the gym today. Okay. Wow. What kind, is that Starbucks coffee today? Oh my gosh, you know, I'm here. Good thing for God, I'm here. 
you know. And this church, you know, they can count me a bigger, bigger crowd now because I'm here, you know, you know. Coming to church. You see the vision he's saying? That he, calls, he says, that's the sacrifice of a fool. And part of the foolishness is they don't even know that they're actually, he says, doing evil. That's actually evil. Isn't that creepy? That's scary. Like it's one thing, it's one kind of evil to run from God altogether and say, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to live life my own way. It's a whole other kind of evil to act that way in the presence of God. So it's the sacrifice of fools to come into church sort of like a, giving a reluctant sacrifice of my time, a reluctant, you know, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, not a reluctant giver. He loves that, the heart that says, God, I'm not here to, 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 to sort of like get points with you. I know, God, what you're truly after. You're not after my lame sacrifices. It's not about my sacrifices. It's about you having me. And God tells Israel this in Hosea 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Look at this. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. More than burnt offerings. More than just the sacrifice I'm here. God says, no. If you're coming to church and it's not to actually know me, you're on autopilot, you're missing the point. And he says, here's the remedy to that. This is so beautiful. He says, you need to come, instead of coming to just give an autopilot sacrifice, here I'm back at church, he says, come with a receptive ear. Isn't that beautiful? Um, what you miss out on when you show up to church with an autopilot, sacrificial, begrudging heart is you don't get to miss out on what Andrew prepared in his sermon. You miss out on hearing from God. And I don't just mean learning something about God. Are you guys with me? God speaks. He, he wants to speak to you. And not just, I, I heard, I learned, there was volume, I heard it, but I'm hearing God himself take what is just a, 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 you know, a human fleshly prepared sermon. I prayed, but I'm just, you know, I'm dust. I'm a man. I created something, and the prayer is, God, through your word, would you by your spirit speak? And you tell us in your word that when we come together, we ought as the church to have ears to hear what your spirit is saying. That's how we are to come before God. Uh, but, but listen, we won't be able to hear if we're talking. Have you ever had that on the phone call? Where, no, you go. You, so, what, no, you go. Okay. Like two people can't hear each other talk at the same time. And a lot of us, that's our problem. We come into church and we're talking to ourselves the whole time. We're here. We got our own thoughts. We're judging this. We're judging that. And maybe one of the biggest problems, we, we come to church is like we think that we are, um, you know, God's appointed critic in the church. I'm here to make this better by critiquing everything wrong with it to hold up my score how was the sermon today how many jokes it wasn't too funny today andrew all right it, it, it the conviction was only this deep all right that deep next week all right and you kind of we come in and especially in this day and age of i mean i feel bad for church planners and preachers in this day and age with the curating of, of video and um, and, and all the, the incredible communicators out there. But what it's created is this like competitive comparison culture in the church where faithful men of God can't teach the word of God faithfully anymore because they're not as funny as that guy. 
And God's people, they have itching ears, so we, we need something more. You don't need, and I don't need anything more than God's word. And when we come into the house of God, it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. The preacher is a mailman. He's just going, here's the mail. Right? You don't, when you get, like, mail, you don't look at the mailman like, I don't like the way you delivered my mail today, okay, from the IRS. Why why did the IRS give you that to give to me? So here's what, what, what James says about this. He says, excuse me, he says this. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness. What a great heart to come into church. An overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's how we should come to church, amen? Like, I'm not here for man. I'm not here to go through the motions. I'm not here to critique a message. I'm not here to judge the word. I'm here to be judged by the word. So God, speak to me. I'm listening open my heart, I humble myself, I'm putting myself under your word, I'm listening, it's amazing what can happen in our lives. It's amazing how much God will speak to us when we listen. This is why he's so good. He's like, I'm talking, just listen. Tune in, attune your heart. Now, a great way to do this, by the way, is by taking notes. I'm I'm giving like how to go to church 101 today, okay? All right? Taking notes is a great way not to make the preacher say, you know, feel good about himself. Like, oh, they're writing down what I'm saying. Yay! Okay? What you're doing with taking notes is you're posturing yourself in a way that says, I value what God has to say to me. Like, I write down my grocery list. Because I don't want to forget it. It's that valuable to me. I don't want to show up or I make Brittany text it to me. That's another thing. But I, I make sure that when I show up at Publix, I, I got to remember what I need. I think God's word is a bit more important than some milk and eggs, personally. And so there's a way to posture ourselves that says, God, speak to me. It's so valuable. It's not, and it's not about like following an outline. Maybe it's just, maybe it's one thing that God says to you and you write it down and you capture it. But it's amazing what you can get out of a message when it's not about the messenger. It's just about what God has to say to you. So I'm going to stop there because I could rant and preach about this for years, Okay. So, but, but that's the second heart, all right? The, the idea here is, I read this in my devotions this week in Psalm 12. I love this scripture. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Seven in the scripture, we know the number of completion. God's word is completely end-to-end pure. There's no word on this earth like the word of God. The word of man, all flesh is grass, it's going to fade away. It's the word of God that's going to endure forever. We would be wise to listen, amen? Thirdly, let's write this down. If we're going to come to church, we need to not just come to church regularly, not just receptively, but we've got to come before God reverently. Reverently. Solomon's going to say that we need to draw near with with a quiet mouth, not being hasty to speak, Verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. You can't listen. If you come and talk and thinking, it's all this. He says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. He uses this illustration. He says, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So it's this really unique, Solomon, sometimes it's like, oh, nice try, Solomon. But it's like this creative uh, illustration where he says, you know, if you work really hard, you're going to be tired, you're going to have a lot of dreams. You're going to get into that REM state. And he goes, just like dreams are the product of a working man, so our foolishness is the product of the constantly talking man and not listening man. 
So again, he's saying when you come into the church, you, you want to be wise, you want to be listening. But listen, not just listening and not just slow to speak because of what God wants to say, but because of who God is. Like if we stopped and we thought about who God is for a second, we were like, okay, God. Like when you see in the Bible these visions, like these people who have these experiences and these visions of God, right? Or or some version of God, the angel of the Lord. There's not a lot of talking. There's not like, hey, hey God, so I've I've had this question about you my whole life. It's usually like frozen, drop, jaw, stun, right? Falling on our face, a feeling of even like unworthiness. I quiet my heart to come before God reverently. Um, it's interesting here, he's talking about the opposite of this is speaking hastily. Uh, Jesus spoke about another way to do this is when you pray, he says, don't use vain repetitions as the heathens do. We can do this in our prayer life, can't we? We just kind of come, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom of heaven, the will be done, the earth is in heaven, right? It's like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? As a kid, I was always like, mom, what's a now I lay me, you know? What's in Nahalami? I mean, it's just this repetitive as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And Solomon says, no, shh, shh. When you come before God, just quiet your heart. And for a minute, recognize this. Ready? You're coming before God. God. He's in heaven. You are on earth. Now, now the, here's the best news of this. Jesus gives us a little bit more understanding to this, and he tells us this, that this God in heaven, when we pray, we can actually call him our Father. Isn't that awesome? So it's not like, okay, quiet. Jesus says, no, it, it's your Father in heaven. It's your Father. So, so the best part about this, first of all, is that we get to come before God, right? He invites us to come near to him. He invites us to draw near to him. He's our Father in heaven. As many as received Jesus we have been given the right to become children of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. But even Jesus knows that he's not our Father on earth. He's our Father in heaven. So there's warmth and intimacy here, right? He's Father, but there's respect, awe, wonder, and reverence because he's my Father in heaven. He's my Father in heaven. That's what, what Solomon says. God is in heaven. Think about where God is and think about where you are. He's in heaven, I'm on earth. He is God and I'm not. Here's what it says in Psalm 115. It says, our God is in the heavens, notice this, and he does whatever he pleases. It's like, whoa. And so how am I to come before him? Well, we see this idea that Solomon is is painting of, of, of reverence, right? I'm coming before God reverently. He's in heaven, I'm on earth. I don't come before him like any man on earth. I come, I come before him. He's my father, but there's this reverence for who he is. There's not this arrogance in my approach. There's this humility. Because he's God in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So I, I come before him reverently. Now, the word reverence, uh, it all, it, it's described, um, I think, pretty practically here in Hebrews. I love this idea in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 says that since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So that's the idea. When we serve him, we come before him with, with reverence, with godly fear. Now, this, this word fear is not like, oh, no, dad has the belt. I got to run. My Father in heaven is angry. The word reverence, here's the idea. It's awe and wonder. That's the idea of reverence. Awe and wonder. 
Okay, and by awe, girls, it's not like awe, God, he's wonderful, you know? Like, no, awe and wonder, it's the feeling you have, it's the sight you see when you're standing over the Grand Canyon, right? It's like, you ever experienced something in creation so big that all you could feel was so small? Now think about God. Awe and wonder, this consuming fire. And I want to say this, that this is why, this is, this is literally why we start our gathering by singing songs to Jesus. Because the first thing we're here to do is not be in awe and wonder of an environment, not be in awe and wonder of a sermon, not be in awe and wonder of ourselves. We've been doing that all week long. The first thing we do here is we enter God's courts with praise and thanksgiving. We praise him so that we can recenter ourselves around the one who's worth it all. Awe and wonder. So that said, back to the point about being here on time. Um, I just want to say, worship is not a buffer period before the sermon. It's not a pragmatic way to start the service. It's a theological way to start the service. And so I want us to be a church that sees the worship of God directly connected to what we're going to hear from the word of God. And so we're here to sing. By the way, we're here to sing to him. We. Not just the lead singers. They lead us in the songs, but but we're all our own worship leaders. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were all each other's worship leaders? Just because we don't have a microphone, still a worship leader. So there's this idea of reverence. And then lastly, we close with this last idea of coming to church responsively. Responsively. We close with this last one. We come regularly because we prioritize the spiritual practice of being in the presence of God. When we come before him, we come before him receptively, listening, tuning in to the pure word of God, which is able to save our souls and change our lives. We come before this God in heaven as those on earth. We come before our Father reverently in awe and wonder of who he is. It centers us for our whole week. We're able to leave here reminded of who's worth it all. When we go into work tomorrow, we can go into work remembering that it's all about Jesus. But we come here responsively. We come here to do something, to be different, to respond. He closes with this idea, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Interesting. So he's like, when you come before God, there there should be something in you where you're ready to respond to him, right? You're ready to go, okay, God, you spoke to me. I recognize who you are. are. I'm here. And I'm not just leaving now the same way I came. Like, I'm going to make you some promises. Like, I'm going to hear the word and I'm going to do the word of God. And this is like kind of a hard thing to teach today in the church and, and for a lot of reasons. First of all, I want to say that, that the, the primary reason why we're here is not just to hear what to do. Can I say that? Um, it was really popular, obviously, in the 90s to have the bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? And that sort of, I feel like, can dominate the church today, too. What do I got to do for Jesus? And it was recently, I was at a coffee shop, and I saw a guy who didn't have a WWJD bracelet. He had a WDJD bracelet. What did Jesus do? Isn't that awesome? Let me say, I pray and I hope that as we gather here every Sunday, the thing that we are most familiar with is not what I haven't done or what I need to do, but what Jesus has done. That's what we need, right? Jesus, what have you done once and for all to purchase my life from death? 
Jesus, what have you done once and for all to forgive me of all my sins? Jesus, what have you done with me just sitting here in need of you? What have you done to resurrect my dead life and give me purpose and an eternal hope? What have you done? This is all about Jesus. What Jesus has done on the cross. God becoming a man to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Isn't he good? What Jesus has done. But I want to say this, that it's not what Jesus has done or what we do instead of what he's done, right? It's not like, it's not like that. It's not one or the other. It's what we do in light of what he's done. And today it's very much like one or the other. Is it what Jesus does or is it what I do? And scripture teaches this idea, no, no, no. It's what Jesus did and how that changes me. How that leads me to go out. And now what I do, it's not to try to earn something from God that Jesus already did. It's to respond it's to live responsively. It's what did Jesus do? Now I can go, Lord, what have you, I'm ready. I'm ready to obey. I'm ready to be different. However you're speaking to me, I'm ready to respond. But I love what Solomon says. He says, if you're going to be ready to respond, one of the most important things about responding to God is doing it realistically. I love that, you know. He's like, it's better just not to make that promise than make it and break it. So like, Lord, I'm gonna sell everything I have today. I'm going to go live on a farm, leave my family behind. You know, it's like, stop, all right? Like, it sounds spiritual. But G listen, Jesus is in the details. He's real realistic. He he's just looking at you right now, and he's, he's going, that one thing. The one thing you're keeping from me. The one area of your life that you're not letting me heal. That one person that you're not forgiving that one sin you're not confessing, that one doubt you're not admitting. Just that one thing. What's that one thing? Can I tell you something? Whatever that one thing is, Jesus is better. He's worth it. He's worth it all. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.